You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Forty years of this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruvain Yeshua Pupko of Beth Israel, Beth Allen of Cote St. Luke, suburb of Montreal, in the province of Quebec, in the incredible state to our north, the great white north itself, as um, Bob and Doug McKenzie used to say, although I don't know if yes. you remember them. Uh, I think that's the way they did it. <laughs> yes, from Canada himself, Rabbi Pupko. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, you know, you know, Dave Thomas and um, and uh, Rick Moranis, who did those two Canadians, <laughs> you know, to a T. So <laughs> but you know, Rick is a Montreal Jewish boy. You know, Rick is a yeah, Jewish yeah, yeah. Montreal boy. Um, I, I think. Have you ever seen him? Do you ever? Do you ever bump into him? No, never seen. Him. Yeah, yeah, he. I, yeah, he, there's there's a, a number of skits where he speaks Yiddish quite well. In fact, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, but, Canadians have produced some uh, some comic talent over the year. John Candy. Uh, what Dan about Eugene Ackroyd. Levy? Eugene Levy is getting his Eugene accolades Levy. now. Yeah, You're right. Yeah. A Sephardi. Um, we can't mention, of course, his program, but that's where we we usually are in that area most of the right, time. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Without a paddle. Yes, we usually a lot of times in this podcast. That's what we. That's what we Alex Trebek is, is Canadian, I believe. Okay, but Alex Trebek is the farthest thing from a Jew that I know. No, I'm just saying, you know. You know. Okay. By the way, the writer for many years, the uh, the head of Jeopardy questions was Ruth Weiss's uh, son. Uh huh. So yeah. very, a lot of Jewish. There were some good, good Jewish questions there. You know? Yes, you know. It reminds me of you know when Brad Garrett. Um, won his Emmy for playing um, an Italian uh, right. you know, giant-sized policeman for Everyone Loves Raymond. And of course, Brad Garrett's real name is either Goldberg or Goldenberg or Garfunkel. Right, right. I think it's Garfunkel. Um, yeah, and Listen, the, same, the most disappointing oh, but, but, wait, wait a second. Let me just say what he said. He said, yeah. thank you so much for showing that a Jewish person <laughs> can have some success in this business. Right. So, <laughs> so great tongue in cheek, especially, you know, considering, you know, you know, every single name uh, of, of old television, you're going to find Jews. Sheldon, so, Sheldon, Sheldon Schwartz, <laughs> the creator right. of It's Island. Sherwood yeah. Schwartz. I'm sorry, Sherwood. Sherwood Schwartz. Right, Sherwood, right. Sherwood Schwartz. Oh, that was such a, yeah. 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 Tina Louise, of course, a nice Jewish girl. I didn't know that. She's Jewish, yeah. Ginger? You betcha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don Wells, unfortunately, Don Wells, not a Jew. Not, not a Jew. No. Tina Louise, Jewish. Jewish. <laughs> yes. Jewish. Yes. We should do our own Adam Sandler Hanukkah video. Of, of old TV stars that nobody really gives a damn oh, about anymore. Right. <laughs> or wasn't the guy from Starsky and Hutch Jewish? Was that John Paul yeah, Glazer? Yeah, of course. John, John Paul Glazer. Yeah. John Paul Glazer. <laughs> Are we getting his name right? Glasser. Yeah. Glasser. Yeah. Paul Glasser. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah he was Jewish. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, anyway. Do you remember? Do you remember watching the Mod Squad? Peggy Lipton. Oh, she's a very wonderful Yiddish Freud. Yes, right of now. course. So he just died. One the, second. The, Peggy Lipton, the girl on the Mod Squad, was right, a Jewish, I know nice Jewish girl. Yes. Yeah, also, the, one. The also, listen, but but she she really gets Netzach Mitzachin for being the head of the diner in Twin Peaks. Yes, yes, yes. That is her Netzach. 
she's I don't going to get anything besides those two things anyway but um but clarence that itself, williams, that itself is enough yeah clarence, clarence williams, williams the third. Third. remember clarence williams the third luke, what was his name luke luke um oh, not luke. i don't remember i met him link once. his name was link link right right yes pete link out of lincoln yes link yeah, pete lincoln julie and um uh, and if i remember correct i don't know if this is a real memory because i haven't watched it in some decades but didn't they use in the opening credits or the like in the song, did they say one black, one white, one woman? Did they say that, or I'm imagining it? <laughs> I gotta go back and watch the opening. It was, yeah. So I once ran into Clarence Williams III in, in Riverside Park in New York. He just passed away. He died, he died in the last couple of weeks. Uh-huh. Yeah, but he was. Uh, yeah, that was a great, the Mod Squad. <laughs> yes, yes. Talk about look. You know, I I remember there was a time right before I went to yeshiva that the whole idea of you know police procedurals look i have a whole story about this which i'll tell you in, in one minute after world war ii the american public and the world public wanted to know how things work they wanted to have procedurals they wanted to understand exactly how radar worked and how they oh, yeah. find stuff and right. the reason was was because the war was won with technology the war was ultimately won by technology and there was a desire to not just you know wallow in victory, but to actually understand how things worked. So that's why television started to produce and, and movies as well, what we call the procedural, where you see how they catch someone and what they do and what an APB is and how they go to the fingerprints. And that really that really developed. Now, now what happened in the '60s was the the dragnet was sort of becoming out of vogue. Right, because, or FBI was Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. Jr., right. Those people were similar to the, the Elliot Ness's group, right. interchangeable. They all right. talked the same way. And they right. all were very straight, very straight. Right. No, no humor, nothing. Right. So what they decided was, let's put a little bit of pizzazz in our detectives. So first, you know, we're going to have Ironside, who has right. to, you know, even though Raymond Bird doesn't have much of a personality, but put him in a wheelchair and, you know, right. and, and also give him a black guy, I think, eventually to, to wheel right. the wheelchair. That'll be something. Then, of course, you would have, and I don't know if I'm getting the, the Seder Adairis correctly, but then you'd have, you know, you know, Cannon. Who you know he he is the fat detective, right? Instead of right. the you know the good looking suave Mannix detective, he's right. the fat guy that's running after everybody. And then you right. had Longstreet, who was the blind detective, right? And, right, right. and then you you know all the different then types. You had Columbo, who clearly had psychological problems, right? And and was an, a, a nice Jewish fellow, Peter Falk, who was right. I mean, Peter Falk was so good. Right, yeah. right, and and that actually turned the whole genre on its head. Okay, and now that we Kojak, who was who was bald. Yes, although he did play a Jew once in Telly Savalas, the most un-Jewish person, but right. he did play a Jew once in an episode on The Untouchables, where oh, yeah? uh, yes, he plays Wally. He also Bal- was in. Uh, he was in the Dirty Dozen. Uh, yes, of course, he was a disgusting uh, rapist. In psychotic the Dirty Dozen. Lunatic, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. He almost ruined the whole. He almost ruined the whole. Uh, the whole mission with his. Yeah, with yeah. His, he was completely nuts. Yes, yes. He had that crazy look in his eyes. Yes, yes. But I will just to tell you about what he did in The Untouchables. He plays Wally Baltzer. And oh, yeah. there's there's a scene where he's sitting with all the rest of the Joseph Weissman, a great Jewish actor, and they're sitting there, you know, um, and he says, Okay, you stay here in kibitz. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But um but Telly, definitely, that group of the Dirty Dozen, the, they were all, you know, again, just having, you know, you could have just, you could have just had Lee Marvin, uh, and that would have oh, been enough. Marvin was so good. So you had Jim Brown, 
I mean, yeah. we oh, all Jim Brown, right? Jim Brown was yeah, in that, yeah. right. We all knew Jim Brown was going to make that one last run. Of course, he gets he gets. Remember that he gets machine gun down, right? Right, right. He doesn't make the end zone, but uh, yeah. Anyway, talking about movies and and Stussem from our youth, one of the 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 brachas of our youth that both you and I share is the uh, the great matana of the day schools that were developed. Now, I talked about the American public wanting to know about procedurals. The American public after World War II recognized the urgency, I believe of having Jewish education for their children. Right. Um, it wasn't enough just to be the big brother across. Oh, the, the biggest revolution. People don't even realize what a revolution it was because it wasn't just that non-Orthodox Jews uh, didn't create day schools. It was that they were ideologically opposed to their very existence because the ethic of the day was the melting pot and anything which impeded integration into the larger American society was considered un-American. It was considered, a, it wasn't against the law, obviously, but it was considered a violation of the American ethic to put Jewish kids in an exclusively Jewish building. That was considered wrong. It was un-American. The reform rabbis were passionately opposed to the creation of, of, of the day school movement that, again, it, it undermined what they thought to be the American way, the American dream. And and, and, and and also would give rise to the idea of dual uh, affinity. Loyalty, everything, yeah, but it was... So people don't really understand the opposition. I mean, I know my father built the day school in Pittsburgh, and this happened in everything. There were rabbis, with, whether it was Torm Sora or, or other way, that built day schools. I, you know, it's funny. Yesterday I had a conversation with a friend of mine who, who's, who's, uh, who's a rabbi in, in the Chabad community here in Montreal. And I, you know, and because I, 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 I have to uh, tape this and, and throw it out to you. I have a friend in Chabad, right? That's right, I have a friend in Chabad. Yes, you have a friend and in Chabad. I have a friend in Chabad. <laughs> yeah. So I, 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 you know, he and I, we were, we were having a very long conversation. It was yesterday, the day before, and about all of our mutual grievances against the other, right? In a good, <laughs> in, in a good mannered way. And one of the things I said to him, I said, listen, I'll tell you one of the things that bothers me about Chabad. Whenever you hear a Chabad rabbi talk about the history of American Jewry, they talk about the Rebbe, obviously, and all the schools Chabad built, and they act as if there was nothing Jewish in America until the Rebbe built, you know, the yeshivas, you know, whatever, all, all the yeshivas that, that were built and everything else. And they don't mention Rabbi Aaron Cutler. They don't mention Torah Masora. They don't mention Yeshiva University. They talk about as if they did include. So his rejoinder to me was, when our school wrote a history of American Jewish life, they left out Chabad. Now, that's obviously wrong. You can't, you know, but I said to him, I said, listen, I don't expect the Chabad rabbi to tout the successes of other movements. I don't. <laughs> However, if you're giving a, if you're talking about American Jewish life, yes, if you're a Chabad rabbi, 95% should be about Chabad. I don't have a problem with that. But why can't 5% be about Rabbi and Kaldur? Why can't it be about Torah Sor? Why can't it be about Yeshiva University? I said, remember something I said to him. The only reason you walk into every hospital in North America today in major centers and you see a young woman with a long skirt and a shakel on her head with a stethoscope and a young man with sitsas out and the armbuck on his head as a doctor, that is the creation, not of Chabad, not of Iron Collar, that's Yeshiva University. And they deserve an enormous amount of credit for, you know, for imagining that possibility which in the 50s and the early 60s, no one imagined possible. The reasons there were such good rabbis 
in the previous generation is because any smart Jewish Orthodox kid became a rabbi. Now our rabbis are dumb because smart Jewish <laughs> Orthodox kids can do whatever they want. Right. Yes, I, I agree. And, and and they realize that not everyone gets that 40 year position like yourself. And most right. of them, you know, most of them are, about, most of them are getting back to about. the day school thing. Yes. We, we, people don't realize the revolution of the day school movement and what it did. And, and, and it created an, for instance, the Balei Shuva of the post six day war. Those were, those were the non-Orthodox kids who were in day schools built by the Orthodox community. They were educated, and therefore they sure. could become Jewish, become former. Right. And but 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 I think you'll agree with me. Just with that, before we get to the Six Day War, which we both spoke about, I think in a very too many uh, times, important. Right? Well, no, not too many times. We talked about how it affected right. us and how it affected our communities. But I think uh, again, knowing the story in Memphis, which is where I'm from, uh, I know that the impetus was not only you know these incredibly dynamic and important people like Rav Nota Greenblatt in Memphis, your father, Rav Pupko, but it was also, I think they were able to tap on to the fact that look what just happened in Europe. Look what just happened over here. And therefore they were able to get many of the donations and donors and people who were sort of on the fence beforehand and had bought into what the reform was right. preaching in terms of we've got to go to public school and recognizing, first of all, it could happen here. That's one thing. The second thing is, even if it will never happen here, let's make sure that what we have can replace, or if not replace, can somehow approximate yeah, maybe, what it yeah. was that we lost. Yeah. And, I, and I think that was part of what they were able to use to create day schools in places you know, and, and some cities never did. Some cities took 10 years. Memphis had its day school in the in 1951 or 1952, which is incredible. If you think about it, a, a small yeah. little southern town. And, and and eventually, you know, the wall started to crack. And as, as, as both you and I in our uh, eighth grade classes, I'm sure there were a number of, of kids who weren't coming from religious homes. Right. It was not I want to tell you something. Yeah. When I went to Hill Academy of Pittsburgh. Me and Fishy Gross were the only Shomer Shabbos kids in the class in an Orthodox day school. We were the only two Shomer Shabbos kids. It was 90% non-Shomer Shabbos. Today, it's 100% Shomer Shabbos, right. obviously, right. because the world has changed so dramatically for good and for ill. And, um, but, it's, it was, uh, it, but again, what was so unusual then and can't be replicated today is that as small of, as a minority as we were, right, two out of 25, whatever it was, it was there was an orthodox atmosphere in the school. Today, if you put twenty-two from kids in a classroom with two or three non-from kids, it's the non-from kids who determine the atmosphere, and no one can explain <laughs> to me why that is. <laughs> I, again, I I'm not sure. I think part of it is the way we're plugged into a culture, yeah. I th and also you know the veneer is not as uh, can be pierced, and uh, many times you know this is a, a new issue about from kids who aren't really from. But I, but I think th I, my point I was trying to build to is that um, I think all, even the, the, the reform parents, the conservative parents who sent their kids, who dug into their pockets to pay tuition that they didn't need to pay because the public school was providing it free. I think they probably believed that they were getting something for their money. Um, you, as you said, many of these people became the Bali Chuva, uh, and eventually these schools became the feeder institutions for places like YU that and produced those Balabatan that you've been talking about. But I think in the if we go now 70 years later, 
70 years later, after the Flowering of the Day School movement, I think what we've had around us for the last 20 years, and, and there's been an attempt to try to, to, stay, to, to, to deal with it, to change the situation, is a situation that's untenable. The untenable situation is the, the costs that the day schools uh, put onto families, where you're talking about official tuition for each child is 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 close to twelve fifteen thousand dollars, and that's not a, a no no that's that, that's if it, that's only if it's cheap. That's a cheap day school. That's no no, no. I mean, you go to Manhattan Day School or the modern Orthodox schools in Cleveland, Detroit, or LA, you're talking twenty twenty five. Twenty twenty five each child. Right. Each I know what my my daughter has four kids in the same day school in Cleveland. We're talking close to eighty. We're talking an eighty grand bill. Right. So this so you can get a discount or something, but it's eighty grand, and it's you know Jewish Orthodox Jewish minimum wage in order to survive. Shul schools camps. Come on, it's we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. So so this is clearly not what. Rafraga Fival or whoever is the heroes of the Torah Masora, the idea that a a, a person, uh, yes, we're Meister Nefesh for Chinuch, but to the point that we we we, we generate animosity, uh, we 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 in a way we isolate people in places and and we force them to to either submit and I had to submit because I never really was a Baal Parnosa to really almost the most degrading. Um, uh, microscopic looks at everything that you make because you have to you have to show your tax returns if you want to get a discount you have Listen, to appeal, is, and appeal I don't again. Have, I don't know how you solve this problem. I know Chicago tried with the Federation to put money away, and I, I, that was the only initiative that I, I heard of. Boston maybe tried something how to bring down the cost of, of tuition, which is again has been a subject of the pages of Jewish Observer and Mishpacha, whatever, for I think 15, 20 years already. It, it, I, I don't know. Listen, the, the more yeshivish seem to be have uh, less of a problem with it. I mean, because the tuitions are less in Lakewood than they are in Englewood. Let's, let's be blunt. Mm-hmm. And the teachers are probably paid less, uh, whatever it is. I don't know how you do it. I don't know what a school budget looks like. I don't know where all the money's going. I don't understand it. Um, I'm not, and God forbid, implying that there's waste or anything else like in the negative, but it, it costs a lot of money apparently to run a school. How do you, how do you make it cheap unless you just simply raise more money? Okay, so uh, I think I think there are two things which I want to throw at you and bounce them off you. The first thing, and I know this from people who have had to come and salvage and 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 and, and right. operations of schools that have that have uh, sort of almost begun to sink. The first thing is to realize that what happened before the big implosion of 2007, 2008, was that the salaries of the administrators was ballooning through the roof. The school, like schools that you mentioned in New York, uh, to become a a principal, uh, and and maybe again, whether it's justified or not, you were talking about in between four and $500,000 for a head of school. That was considered clear, four to 500,000. The 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 and and many of the other administrative people were making a uh, quarter million dollars. So in the administration itself, you were dealing with That's two, to three, crazy numbers, two yeah. to three two to three. And 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 what I'm telling you is not mugzam at all. 
because I, I remember when the school I was involved with went and hired somebody, and I remember I was privy to some of the discussions. They were talking about the man was holding out for four hundred and ninety thousand uh, dollars, which you know to to become the head of school, and that the, there already you have a, a tremendous amount of of money. Um, the, right. The other thing I want to throw at you is that when people were quite wealthy. Uh, and, you know, we were writing, I don't know if it was the dot com or whatever it was that they were writing the junk bonds. I'm not sure what financial, you know it better than I do, what it was that they were writing financially uh, to to have all this hedge fund money. There was a lot of vanity uh, school aspect, which is we're going to start a school in honor of my mother. We're going to start a school in honor of this. And then they started to, the school started to become. And then you would have in, in a radius of 10 or 15 miles, let's say here in New Jersey, or 25 miles, or in New York, uh, you'd have seven or eight, or in Westchester County, a bunch of different schools popping up, each of them being the project of some... I I think that's probably a phenomenon unique to New York area, but okay. Okay, so what I'm saying is, is that once the implosion happened, I think compression was the answer. Uh, You know, even in Lakewood or, or, or in the five towns, Again, you're right. We're Hillel. Oh, we're Beis Yaakov. There needed to be a compression in order for the schools. Well, work. again, again, there's a couple of things to play here. And again, okay, go ahead. The Orthodox community is so diverse; it's really hard to generalize. But what also happened is that while 50 years ago you could imagine kids from different streams of the Orthodox community sitting in a room together, today no one finds that imaginable. Right. Everybody has to be in their own exact niche in, of the Jewish world. Right. If your father's kippah ruga, somehow you cannot sit in a room who's with a kid whose father is wearing a black hat. Uh, you know that it, it just doesn't happen anywhere. I mean, it, it, ha- it happens in some smaller communities. It does. It happens in places like maybe, uh, you know, Seattle or Cincinnati or places like that. But uh, it's, it's a tough thing. I mean, oh, I know the situation in Seattle very well, but my, my sister is the head of school of the, of the, of, of the uh, I guess we'd call the, the centrist Orthodox school. And then a more yeshiva's place opened up 10 years ago. And I understand that they're, they're facing some uh, profound challenges now. And it, I don't know. I mean, it, it just, consolidation becomes difficult when people of different streams can't live together. Now, if the diversity is more vanity project driven, that's certainly impossible. But where it's driven by ideological, I, I, I don't, there aren't, we are bereft of rabbinic leadership that says to people, community is a imperative, right? Community is a value. Unity is a value. Um, but everyone is so worried about, the yeshivas are worried about their kids being in a, in a school where their kids, where, where other kids have computers or, or televisions. Everybody needs to, wants to create a cocoon. And because, you know, the off the Derek crisis and all this stuff. And I, I don't think what they, I, I think they're actually undermining their, their own cause in, in some places, in some ways. But, uh, you and, know, what, can I just, let me just add to that, that as someone who tried to raise their kid, you know, away from some of those influences, but they crept in in a way that they were so insidious that I lost a child in some ways to those. I think had my child been part of a more modern, open environment, 
where there was, you know, a, a nice rabbi behind it, I think that the allure would have been different. Well, listen, I, I, it would have been I, completely I, changed. Listen, I, I, again, I think I've said this before. Uh, there's very few things I haven't said before. Yes, yes you're always basically regurgitating <laughs> the same thing. But the point is, you know, I, I waxed sophomoric at the beginning of this uh, long t- a few months back about vaccines, right? If you get inoculated with something, you can fight it right. off. Right? That's yes. what a vaccine teaches you. Yes. That's the philosophy of science. And it's true, you know, you know, in, in, the, in the religious context, in the social context. Okay. And because we raise our children in these orthodox bubbles, they are ill-equipped to engage or deal with the outside world. And it therefore seems overly attractive and overly mysterious and only is a magnet for them. And if we had more diverse neighborhoods and more diverse schools, where children had an opportunity to learn how to define themselves against, and I don't mean in a, in a, in a negative way, but against others and understand who they were and who their family and what their family was all about, maybe it, it would be better. But again, there is such a fear of the OTD stuff, off the Dara stuff, that people want to build walls that are higher rather than thinking, you know, in, in, in a more creative way about how to instill. Listen, it's really hard to be firm. It's really hard to be bent tight. It's really hard. And the only way you pull it off, I think, is if you feel you really, there's a, there's a deep authenticity to it and a great value to it, and that you are special because of it, and that you have a special mission in life. And the, the uniqueness of that mission is diluted when you're just part of a crowd of a thousand other kids in the same school, living in the neighborhood okay. where you don't see anybody else. Kids have to feel special, okay. I think. So, so you know, let me push back just for a second. You know, both of us, you know, I also was the minority. Uh, you know, there were four or five religious kids in a class uh, that most of the boys at least were not. Um, I think the reason what you're saying, and I felt the same way, was I would invite kids over for Shabbos. I would, you know, the kids that weren't religious, they knew that my bar mitzvah was not going to be on Shabbos because you weren't supposed to drive. Um, and in many ways, I didn't realize that I, I was we, I was sort of making a kiddush Hashem by showing right. them that we you know and I that I could be a fun decent person at the same time you come to my house and everything's going to be kosher and we're not and we don't watch television on Shabbos or anything like that I, I, and I think part of that Rabbi is that both of us in our own different ways appreciate being mashpi on others but there's a lot of kids. Especially right. who who are who are really more passive. But I'll tell you from my own experience. It's hard for them to be. You, it's hard for them to to put them in a role where okay, you're going to be in this class and you're going to show them and you're going to to remain strong and show them how beautiful being a yid is or being from is. It's not doesn't always. But I want work. to tell you something else. Let me give you an example. Okay, there's a program that started 30 years ago called March the Lead, right? Where thousands of Jewish kids from North America every year get on a get, get on a plane. It didn't happen last year because of COVID. Get on a plane and spend a week in Poland, a week in Israel. It is the most extraordinary opportunity to bring cl- kids clo- close, closer to Jewish life. The emotional impact, the time it is in their lives uh, when they do it. So nowhere in North America do Orthodox kids go with the non-Orthodox, right? The Orthodox kids, well, they, the parents, I don't want them to be with our kids who aren't from. I don't want them to do this. I don't want, you know, they're going to go down heritage anyway when they spend their year in Israel. They don't need to go on the march. So, I mean, whatever. In Montreal, for many years, we had a significant contingent 
of Orthodox kids from the Hebrew Academy School. That went together with Bialik kids and Herzliya kids who, generally speaking, were not Shomer Shabbos. The impact that the Hebrew Academy kids had on the, and I was there, I would get credit for the extraordinary work. I didn't deserve any of it because the Hebrew Academy kids did the Kiruv, not intentionally at all. Trust me, at all. But when for the first time, non-from kids saw from kids who were culturally pretty much just like them. They listened to the same music, they read the same books, went to the same movies, right? They, they were conversant in the culture of the day. Yet when it came time to bench, they knew it. And when it came time to dive, they knew it. And I can't tell you how many kids from non-religious backgrounds would come to me on a March living and say, Rabbi, why didn't my parents teach me this? And I know so many kids from those days when the Orthodox kids were still permitted to be with the non-from kids, how many kids became from because of that exposure? Simply by seeing a normal bottle. And the funny dynamic of the trip is, before the trip, you ask the from kids, they think, oh, all the non-from kids are going to look down at us for being a bunch of losers and, and weirdos for being religious. The non-religious kids are going to think, oh, all the religious kids are going to look down at us because we're not religious enough. And it takes two days to debunk all of that, right? The, the, you know, the, the, everyone understands that the other, you know, that neither preconception was accurate. And, and the impact is unbelievable. But we sequester ourselves. Now, I understand the instinct for, 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 for sequestration, right? You want to protect your kids. You don't want them exposed to influences. You don't want them engaging in relationships that, that, that may lead in, the, in, in all the wrong directions. You, 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 you want to protect your kids. And, and, and it's hard to get parents and rabbis to believe that whatever risk there may be is far outweighed by the benefits, not just for the non-from kids, but a from kid is put in the position of being in unintended mashpia, it strengthens their Yiddishkeit. That's what people don't understand. I remember, you know when I learned this? It's very funny. I was reading a story about uh, sex ed in public schools and about responsible during AIDS, responsible sexual behavior. I don't know why I was reading this. And it said something interesting. What they did in certain (laughs) high schools is they had a mentor situation where kids in 12th grade we're mentoring kids in 10th grade. This was it, you know? And what they found from the study is that it had minimal impact on the sexual behavior of the 10th graders, but it had an enormous impact on the 12th graders who were put in a mentorship role, right? And that's what our Orthodox kids, and, and you know, obviously the analogy is that when you put Orthodox kids in a role of being mentors, it, it emboldens their Yiddish type. It doesn't weaken it. And I, I don't think we learned that lesson well, well enough. But again, we're not really getting to your core issue, which is how right, these are, because, these because, are unsustainable institutions. Right. So, again, what you were saying, uh, you know, argues or is an ad- advocates for having more events where we bring people together like March of the Living or whatever it is, uh, Parade for Israel or uh, Blood Drives, whatever it is you're doing. Um, but I think the economic reality and the way the, the economic uh, implosion, which I think is on the horizon very soon again, in terms just of, of, of the rising costs that are going to be with us and, and seemingly for a very long time, uh, calls for some creative thinking about the schools. But here's what I do know is that yeah. for the first time in my life, 
I know of the phenomenon in New Jersey and in Ohio and other places where from kids are in public school. In the 70s, that did not happen, right? From kids were all in day school. No such thing as not being in a day school if you were in a summer shop at home. It didn't exist, right? Today, it exists again because of the finances. Right. And, and, and that's, and, that's um, I can't believe the world in which we're living. And, and there's also, of course, COVID unleashed um, a, uh, a phenomena of from kids being homeschooled in numbers that they were not beforehand. My nephews, my grandnephews and grandnieces are being homeschooled. And I, 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 I very, and I think that is something as well. Um, I, I think there's also the idea if, if the schools, you know, we can combine these schools that are limping along together, uh, but there's also the fact that the online uh, possibilities now oh, in a way can make it that there are many courses and classes, even on an elementary school level, that we don't necessarily need the brick and mortar. I don't know. I, I, I certainly agree with you. It's very possible on a high school level. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think we have the data yet from the COVID experience about online learning. What I know anecdotally from the kids in my school and from their parents and the teachers is that it worked better you know, for the older kids. And even in that, even in that age, in those age groups, it wasn't hundred percent. Some kids are just more, you know, you know, more, more adaptable to the online scenario, but there's no question that, for instance, you look at, look at Chabad Shluchim, right? How does a guy, how does a, how does a Chabad guy in Nova Sabirsk educate his kids? He's been online for a decade already and want more. They do these online classes and, and whatever you want to say about Chabad, the children of Shulchan are good kids. They're Yari Shemai, they're 100%. And, um, and they don't go off the derech being the only from kid in a thousand miles. And, and that's a remarkable thing. That's a mar- remarkable achievement. And, right, but, you know, but, when you hear think, about think, people leaving Chabad it's, or Chabad light, whatever, all these conversations, these different things, you don't hear it amongst the Shulchan's kids. You hear it amongst the people. In, yeah, look, say, that, 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 okay, one second. That, that has to do with the winnowing process that occurs throughout the Chabad Chinuch to know who's the Shliach, the Mashpia. Chabad is extremely organized in, 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 and they can zero in on who's the person and they know how to implant the idea of being a Mashpia uh, no. among everyone. So again, they are extremely so the, the adept. There are people who are, the weaker people don't get sent to uh, um, you know, to Mumbai or any of these other places, you know, and that's why it was such a, you know, you know, Gavi um, uh, was such a, a terrible tragedy. He was such a, 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 a ish that was so mukshar. Um, I, I think the other thing which I want to throw out is that the reason why there's a resistance is because there's Yunga Light and their wives and others who, if there would be a compression, which I think is called for, because I don't think the schools can can handle it, they're going to lose their jobs. So there's a great lobbying force of people. No, no, no. We have to keep the school the way it is. We have all these teachers to pay. And Listen, I, I, if there's consolidation, teachers don't lose their jobs. Administrators lose their jobs. Right. That's you're, still, you're not going to have a classroom with 50 kids. No one's going to allow that. So you can't consolidate. You could, you could see consolidation with online, and you could see consolidation administration. Teachers, listen, the, the, the crisis in every modern Orthodox day school is how do you find modern Orthodox teachers? They don't exist. I mean, what modern Orthodox uh, uh, father or mother in Tinak, you know, was sitting at the Shabbos table and they turn to their son and they say, what do you want to do for a living? And he says, I want to be a teacher in a day school. Doesn't sit shiva. 
I mean, that, okay, you know, in other words, it's not valued enough or encouraged enough in the modern Orthodox world. So either out of town, it depends where, but they end up either recruiting Israelis or they recruit from the Haredi world, they get Haredi light in there. But the modern Orthodox world has proved itself incapable of producing a significant number, a cadre of young people who want to be teachers in day schools. They don't exist. And I know what they have to do. The schools go to YU while, they, while, while students are sophomores and offer them the world then for in exchange for a commitment to teach by them when they graduate. It's, it's, they don't, you know, every little community has its own problems. You know, Lakewood has a problem where they don't have enough space for all the girls, right? Where you need a new school, Canine Hall, almost every other year because of the demographic explosion. The modern Orthodox, the expense is impossible for people. So you either have to raise more money, consolidate institutions to make it make it viable. Here in Quebec, I'm in the only place in North America where the government subsidizes day schools and the tuition is much less expensive here. But even here, whatever it is they're paying, there's no complaining about it. And um, uh, but it is remarkably cheaper in Quebec. Then you have states like Ohio, where you do have vouchers, depending on the what the neighborhood public school looks like. And, and, and vouchers are, are are becoming more popular in some places. But uh, there has to be some kind of solution to this. It doesn't make any sense. I, I should tell you, in Pennsylvania as well, they have options that various businesses can sponsor uh, day school children and, mm-hmm. and and get a complete tax write-off for that so uh-huh. they are you know that is also something that they were working on as, as and again all these things are inventive means but don't really uh attack the core problem which is it is so expensive and i think the um you know it, it you know I, I have rachmanis really uh yeah. you know on, on on these families and because you can imagine there's there's no greater pressure on shalom bias than a financial one right. um when you know and, and it creates and, terrible strain i agree with you and, and and really, you know, you really have to wonder um, uh, what what could we we could do. So we've really really danced around this, but we haven't really come up with with much. Um, no, I don't I, think. Listen, some of the very smart people have spent the last twenty years trying to figure this one out, and there isn't an easy solution. Schools cost money, teachers cost money, right? And and you gotta and, and you gotta put the bodies in the chairs, and yeah. you you gotta raise some money for scholarship, See, but never I, enough. So what I, I'll tell you what I was thinking, just to throw this out. I, I, I think that we know that there was always, like where we went to school, there was always, you know, one teacher that really shouldn't have been in front of a classroom, not because of, <laughs> not, I'm not talking about, you know, sexual proclivities or things like no, that. No, I know what you mean. Just, just, uh, just, an inab- just a complete failure in terms of classroom management, an inability to, 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 to keep their temper uh, in strain. Uh, like, and we know that the schools had a lot of that. Now, now they've tried to weed a lot of that out, but I think that they still are there. There's still people who are, 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 are in the teaching profession that shouldn't be. And I think when you deal with the humanitarian um, plea that they have, you can't just fire me. I've been here for 40 years. I've been here. Right. I, I think what we need to think about also is about retraining and, and, and figuring out what we can do with that workforce um, in a way that we get the best teachers, the, the most for the most for their buck. I'll tell you a story um, of the Chazadish. The Chazadish, they fired up a lot at B'nai Brak and the tea because it was, just wasn't good. And uh, the Baal Batim came to Chazanisha, how do you fire this guy? What's he going to eat? And the Chazanisha said, best ass in Kinder. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can't, you can't you, we need, 
professional development works. Some some people can never be uh, can never are, are not educable. Some people are. You also need heads of school that take education seriously, that sit in classrooms and watch teachers teach, and, and are able to tell a math teacher what they're doing wrong and a Gemara teacher what they're doing wrong, right? Or or what they could be doing better. You need. It's a very hard job being a teacher. I could never do it. Right. I don't understand teachers. I don't understand how they do what they do. But there are people who have these skills and the character personality to do it and they need help. Yeah. So, right. And I I think there's going to be many, whether it's the old timer who's can't learn, you know, what a mouse is or it's going to be a people who just don't have the personality. But we need, because they aren't going to uh, medical school, because they're not going to law school, because they haven't trained in the high professions, there also needs, this has to go hand in hand with, like we've talked about what Satmar and other Hasidim have done, get these people other types of jobs. Right. There needs to be an idea that even though you're a quote unquote Bentera, teaching in an elementary school is not where your skills lie. And you should be besimcha over, we're gonna to try to find something else. Maybe it's it's someplace where you don't interact with people as much. Maybe it's working with your hands more. Maybe it's getting involved in some other sort of area. Uh, and if you could swallow your pride and realize that, uh, that I think is another aid so that has to go hand in hand. Yeah. Creating jobs for that, that those groups who are now the teachers who, although they're not getting what the administrators are getting, are still siphoning off money and also are holding the board and their children by emotional blackmail. Because yeah. you right, because just like those people came to the Khazanish, they're all over the place. And maybe I was one of them too. You know what I'm saying? You know, when <laughs> I made my case, right? Yeah, you know, how could you fire me? Right. But the problem is, is that that where else was that person supposed to go? You know, they they stay by Rabbi Israel Salanter that Rafatoli Amsterdam, he went to Rafatoli Amsterdam and um he said to him, you know, I, I I love what you're learning. I love the fact that you're learning in Lumdus, but he says, Look, in a couple of years from now, you're going to have to take a Rabonus. So and at that time, you're gonna have to cram for it. You might as well realize, face the reality now and start learning areas where uh, that are much more practical. Right. Instead of saying, oh, I learned, now I have to become a rabbi and learn on the job. I think the same thing, you know, taking Rav Yisrael. Oh, I mean, listen, I got to tell you, the, the Chesidish I think, are better at this in, in some ways. The Belzer certainly are very good at sure. this. And, uh, well, part of it is because they don't put on a pedestal the ultimate level of being a, a Talmud Chacham and a teacher, uh, and, and therefore, a person can fight his inner demon and say, yeah, I'm a Kabbal. It's just not for me. But I, yeah. I, I still feel happy being a Frum Jew because I go to shul, I wear, a, 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 I go to the mikveh, I'm with my friends at the Tish, I, I, I can say Torah and Shabbos to my friends. Um, we don't, unfortunately, you know, that doesn't exist generally in the Litvisha world. Uh-huh. Um, you're a fa- basically, either you're a, a, you're a balabas rolling in the dough or, you know, you're a Rashka Bahag. But if you're somewhere in the middle, you walk around with your head down. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Uh, well, so I think those All are right. some, some, some options. And uh, we end, uh, unfortunately, you know, we start on such a, a gay, wonderful, um, you know, in living color uh, type of note. And unfortunately, we end in a place where, um, you know, we, we sort of, the, the, the curtain comes down uh, w- without much, without much resolution. resolution. Yes. 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 But 
I, you said, I think the creative solutions are in the offing. Consolidation and technology. Okay. All right. All right, my friends. Take care. I'm so glad we had this time together just to have a laugh. I'm so glad we had this time together. What's that song? What's you that said you were never going to sing, but go ahead. Yes, Carol. <laughs> I'm just to have a laugh or sing a song. Seems we just get started. And before you know it, comes the time we have to say so long. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling my earlobe. Take care, everybody. Talk to you later. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.